Hello and welcome to the London School of Theology podcast. You are listening to our weekly chapel service. In this episode, you'll be hearing from the Reverend Dr. Chris Steed. London School of Theology. Forming disciples. Resourcing churches. Impacting society. Michael Ramsey, former Archbishop of Canterbury and theologian, said, God is Christ-like, and in him is no unchristlikeness at all. And can you be worried? Can you be an anxious person? Can you have lots of struggles? and still be becoming more like Jesus? We'll get on onto that a bit later. <laughs> so you'll see I bought a rather tired-looking vine, branch. We've got a vine here at LST. How many of you know that? It's just outside the laundry room and uh, just near, near the car park. I actually bought one from home, but by the time I got here after my lengthy drive in this morning, it was looking a bit tired and weak. And uh, so anyway, the vine, because I asked our TC class last week, TC4, all right, I'm going to speak on what does it mean to be like Jesus? And we had some ideas flowing, and somebody said, well, I think it's about bringing forth fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. So that might be a good place to start. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, meekness, gentleness, goodness, faith, against which there is no law. Galatians 5, that would be a good place to start. All of which perhaps summarized in a four-letter word. Love. Jesus, if you think about it, was love with skin and bones. Incarnate love. Love walking around. Love with two legs, two arms, a beating heart, and eyes of compassion. Love might sum up what Jesus was like. So would it also be true that Jesus railed against and called out injustices. Well, yes, he did. He did call out. He preached against injustices. So if that's the case, how come the church has been able to live with injustices in society without calling them out. And that's a real puzzle of church history. How come, and when you read church history, you can quiver with indignation. How come people didn't call out the wretched things that were going on all around them, the way human beings were being trashed? And yet, what's going on in our day? Reference earlier to slavery and sex trafficking. Think, too, of that report we had just yesterday about 
sexism in the Met, racism in the London police force. So if we were more like Jesus, would that make us more likely to call out the injustice? Yes, it would. If we were attuned to God. Because if we're attuned to God, and by the way, to our deepest selves, we will be attuned to what's going on around us. Now, I became a Christian just over 50 years ago. I started preaching almost immediately. And I was searching, now I was a Jesus person, for a Jesus way of life, a way of life that would resonate with the core of my new being. I'm not going to stand here and say I have lived up to that across the years. I know very much that I'm a sinner saved by grace. And I stand before you as I'm sure all of us would echo one way or another, but testament to the faithfulness of a faithful saviour, the one who will see us all home, the one who will see us through. But I know that somewhere that call to be a Jesus person and live a Jesus way of life has been at the core of my being. And that's where I want to turn and return. So we could consider the fruit of the Spirit, but I decided instead to tell you about a wardrobe. <laughs> I want to read to you that same passage in the message translation. Chosen by God for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, and discipline. Be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense, forgive as quickly and completely as the Master forgave you, and regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic all-purpose garment. Never be without it. Let the peace of Christ keep you in tune with each other, in step with each other. None of this going off and doing your own thing. Cultivate thankfulness. Let the word of Christ have the run of the house. Give it plenty of room in your lives. Instruct and direct one another using good common sense. And sing, sing out your hearts to God. Let every detail in your lives, words, actions or whatever be done in the name of the Master Jesus, thanking God the Father every step of the way. Go to the wardrobe. Now you know what that's like. It's Friday night. You're going out. You go to the wardrobe. All these clothes and you say, I still haven't got anything to wear. <laughs> You're invited to 
a party. What shall I wear? You go to a wedding and you've got an invite to a wedding. What on earth am I going to wear? You dress for LST. What am I going to wear? No, you probably don't exercise your, yourself on, on, on that one. But we've got a wardrobe and we think about the choice of clothes that we have. What's your wardrobe like at home? Is it crammed full? Are there some gaps in your wardrobe that you think, actually, could do with a new pair of trousers or something? What's your wardrobe like? So this is beautiful imagery. Go to the wardrobe and see what it is you want to pick out. What it is you want to wear. Because you know there's a gap in your personal wardrobe. And I need to work at this quality. If I'm to be a Jesus person and have that Jesus way of life resonating with the core of my being, then I need to work on this or that. Now this passage in Colossians doesn't, of course, just stand alone. And it's preceded by a great text which well, preceded by several chapters, actually. <laughs> but in verse 10 of that um, same chapter, chapter 3, Paul's letter to the Colossian Christians, it says this, you've put off the old humanity, the old man with his deeds, and you've put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So when we think about what does it mean to be like Jesus, well, we could immediately go to character. This wardrobe, the contents of the wardrobe. Right, well, that's what it would mean to be like Jesus. That's probably fairly straightforward. We know that we've got to think about um, love and uh, kindness, humility, quiet strength and discipline. That would be good. You know, there used to be, um, well, it, it was a bracelet people had. What would Jesus do? WWJD. Anyone ever have one of those? What would Jesus do? Well, how do you know what Jesus would do? And when we say, speak about being like Jesus, being Christ-like, what on earth does that mean? I, I don't really know what that means. I don't, we don't know what Jesus looked like, clearly. But what we do know is that the humanity that people encountered walking around the dusty roads of Palestine gave way to something else. So love with skin and bones, love with two legs that people kept bumping into, recorded through the Gospels, Jesus saving people, Jesus loving people, Jesus giving people value and redemption, all of these wonderful things. We could imagine, well, that's what I need to be conformed to, the image of that figure There's a little problem. Jesus died and rose again. His, 
the humanity that he encapsulated has been subject to resurrection. We live now in a new humanity. If we are a Jesus person, and by the way, you can't be a Jesus person without being a Holy Spirit person and a God the Father Christian. Don't think you can, because you can't. But we live, or we should live, in a new humanity. Let me explain this a little bit. Because being like Jesus is not just a question of character. It involves us with three things, I believe. The first is some theology. Being in a place like this, of course it does wouldn't be allowed at lunch without bringing some theology into it. (laughs) The second is practices. And the third is ethical ideal, ethical character. So take the first of those, theology. The Bible says that Jesus was the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15.45. The old Adam humanity, the man of dust, who returned to the dust. The fallen humanity. Jesus came as a fully paid up member of the human race. The last Adam. And yet, because of his death and resurrection, he becomes something else. He becomes the new man, the new humanity. That's why Paul sets up in Romans uh, and um, Ephesians as well, and here in Colossians, this contrast between the old and the new. So when Romans again, Romans 8 and verse 29, talks about being conformed to the image of his son, well, that goes more than us trying to identify with the earthly figure of Jesus, if we could bear even imagine what that was like. It takes us into the embrace of our new humanity, God is dealing with humanities, not just with my individual life, not just with my family circumstances, not just with my church or my country. God is dealing with humanities, a generic human race. Are you in the old humanity still or the new humanity? And it's not even as straightforward as that because we are on our way to our destiny, which happens to be our destination. We're work in progress. We're between two worlds. That might be a way of understanding Romans 7 where Paul is describing the struggles with trying to keep God's law and trying to do the right thing. This is not an exposition of Romans 7. 
But you know, this way in which we have to contend between the old and the new, the great thing is, and Paul develops this in Romans 8, of course, the great thing is that in that transition, we are not on our own. Do you know, God doesn't say to you, this is my ideal for you. Be like Jesus. Now try and live up to it. He doesn't do that any more than he gave us the ten laws and said, right, here it is. Now try and live up to it. Almost damned if you do, damned if you don't, because you can't. He gives us the empowering, he gives us the Holy Spirit. We're not on our own. In the embracing of the new dimension, the new humanity, you, dear brother and sister, dear student, dear staff colleague, you are not on your own. There is a power that works with you. What have you got to do to make that happen in your life? Well, think of this. Think of the creed that in the Church of England, for one, we say most Sundays. How many human beings are in the creed? Someone tell me. Someone tell me. How many human beings are mentioned in the creed? Yes. No. 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 Come on, all you Anglicans out there. How many human beings are mentioned in the creed? No. No. <laughs> well, you could, you could look like that. No, the correct answer is two, and it is Pontius Pilate and Mary. Well, and, yeah, but... Yeah, all right, okay. <coughs> yeah, well, I'm... <coughs> yes, all right, I can, I can see that one. But, but the point is... <coughs> Those two other human beings, apart from the God person, <clears throat> to ordinary humans, shall we say, one says no to God and the other says yes. So what you've got to do is keep saying yes, 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 every day. And that is the pathway to this work in progress which is about Christ-likeness, this long, slow process of growth. So that's the theology. You are in the new humanity. And Paul says again and again, you've got to live it out. You've got to grow that. You've got to cultivate it. Embrace the new. So when you were thinking about, well, this is going to be a sermon on being like Jesus, well, you didn't expect theology to to make an appearance. Well, what about this one? Practices. Practices. They say practice rarely makes perfect. Spiritual practice deepens and refines the way that people turn and return to the truth of their being. Spiritual practices. You are formed. You develop. You cultivate. You grow. And the more... Um, immersed in the practice, then actually 
the more you know that there's an inward transformation going on. Conversely, it's not something you can, you can observe very easily. People don't know what's going on inside you. They don't know how much you are changing, becoming more like Jesus inside. They might gauge it from your actions. Yes, there's something becoming a bit different about you. You're becoming more, more patient or something. But inside, you know if that transformation is going on, just like you cannot pick up from brain scans very, very well what, what's going on in the spiritual life, maybe a little bit, but that won't give you very much information. But practices are a good way of finding out <clears throat> what's going on, observing practice. Just as an aside, there's been little or insufficient attentiveness to practices. When people study religion or faith, they turn first off to the theology, like we just did. They turn first off to the beliefs. They go to the propositional statements, the creeds. Right, this is what that faith, this is what that denomination teaches. But it's more, there's more to it than beliefs. There's also about practices. And what we'll look at in a tick, but the ethical, the character, the effects of becoming a Jesus person. I mention this because Jesus taught his disciples to pray. So his disciples had a window on his practices. They could see that to be like Jesus, in some way to see him as a role model, I need to follow and copy what he's doing as much as I can. And Jesus no doubt saw their faltering steps in prayer and he thought, well, I'm going to give them some help. But what triggers the Lord's Prayer as we know it was not because Jesus said, right, well, this is a model prayer. Copy this and, you'll, go, and you'll, you'll do well. You'll know how to approach God and meet the needs of every day, the kind of syllabus of things you'd want to pray for and any average day would be encapsulated within it. That's not where it started. You read the beginning of Luke chapter 11. Where did it start? It started when the disciples saw Jesus praying. They saw him praying. What was it that grabbed them? What was it that spoke to them and resonated with this new calling in their lives? Something about the way that Jesus was praying spoke to them deeply, profoundly. And they said, I wish I could pray like that. I wish I could pray 
really pray? Not just say prayers, but have that kind of encounter with God which is like opening the door of a blast furnace. I wish I could do that. I wish I could really be so close to God in those moments of encounter that it's sweeping over my being and something amazing's going on. Lord, teach us to pray. In other words, it was caught before it was taught to be like Jesus. To be like Jesus. It's got to be caught. To be caught from role models, to be caught by people who can walk the walk and talk the talk. When, for example, Paul went to the churches of Galatia, started the churches of Galatia indeed, writing to them some years afterwards, the very first Christian writing that we have almost certainly, he could say, you received me as Christ the Lord. You think that would be blasphemy if it, if it wasn't there in Scripture in chapter 4? Those things which you see and hear in me, said Paul, do. They did not live in Palestine. They had not encountered Jesus walking around Israel. They lived far away. So when Paul comes along and tells them about the crucified God, how are they to know what being a Jesus person is going to be like? Paul says, look at me. I will exemplify. I'll be a role model. And you can find out what you need to do. What a claim. I couldn't do that. I could not do that. There's no way that I could say, right, everybody, look at me. I will model what being like Jesus means for you. I wish I could. Practices. And here's the third one. It is ethics. See, Jesus did not just show us salvation... He showed us the shape of a redeemed life. So if you want to know what a redeemed new humanity looks like, there it was. For one brief shining moment, says John, we saw it. We felt it. Lord, we reached out and we touched it. God showed up in this world. And we lived in the glory of it. The shape of a redeemed life. Now this is where it gets countercultural. So I read the other day this, this statement. In the life of the true Christian, self is dead. As there was no selfishness in the life that Christ lived while in this earth, on this earth. Is that true? Self is dead because there was no selfishness in the life, the life that Christ lived while here on this earth. 
I don't think it is. I think that's mixing up the self and selfishness. Selfishness, of course, it would get a bad press. If I say selfish, we'd all go boo. But dying to self, that's had a long running in Christian spirituality and versions of holiness. Being a new man, I was given to understand in a lot of holiness preaching that I was exposed to donkeys years ago. Being a new man meant that dying to self. In fact, don't just make it a one-off. Die to self every day. Gosh. But that is profoundly countercultural. Should we die to self or should we be true to ourselves? That is where the rubber hits the road. That's the big cultural values gap. The challenge in our day. You see, every film out there, every song probably out there, every message out there is telling you Be the best version of yourself. And that's been pretty much the case in one way or another since the Enlightenment. So this big um, move into towards what we call modernity, the modern world. And you see it in such standard bearers of the Enlightenment as the Swiss philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who said this. When looking for life's rules of conduct, he said he found them, quote, in the depths of my heart, traced by nature in characters which nothing can efface. I need only consult myself with regard to what I wish to do. What I feel to be good is good, What I feel to be bad is bad. Carefully examine your feelings. That's the modern creed. That's what someone will do these days about embarking upon a new relationship or a new job. Does it feel right? Somebody texted me the other day. Do what your heart tells you. After all, Humans are the ultimate source of meaning, right? We don't rely on external sources of authority to tell us what to do. Like a parent in the sky, instead, listen to yourself and follow your heart to justify an affair. Feelings are the litmus test. Divine command, well, that's all old hat. And that signified a move from revealed religion to natural religion that these days goes under the name of spirituality. It's contemporary stance that could be characterized as an anti-theology position. That's not what we're about. As Christians, we cannot live by that creed. Just do what your heart tells you. Listen to your feelings. Yes, you need to bring that into it. But that cannot be the ultimate. 
To become more like Jesus, you have to examine not just the injustices around you, but the way that you are attuned to the modern creed. So are you doing that? Are you becoming more like Jesus? It's a long, slow process of growth, this is. We bear the name of Jesus. Let us be true to his name. To be a Christian means to be Christ-like. That is true. To be a little Jesus, it means to follow Jesus in self-denial. I wouldn't say putting yourself to death. God wants you to flourish, except in and through him. It means wearing a banner of love, imitating Christ in unselfish service. Being that best version of yourself, and yet doing it under his name, and for his glory and to bless others. And every, if you live like that, dear friends, every day of your life will be precious because we will see it as an opportunity to entrust those gifts that have been entrusted to us to bless others. <clears throat> so I've been preaching, as I say, for 50 years and um, I always, having thought very carefully and prayerfully about what I'm going to say, then comes the the challenge of soaking it in prayer. And uh, that's when I internalize it. Lord, what do you want me to say? What's the application? What do you want me to say to these dear staff and students here today? What's your message, Lord? And that comes, doesn't come because you think it out. It comes as you internalize it through prayer. It's a good practice to get into. But this is what I feel God told me to say. To be like Jesus means to embrace the new, the new being, the new humanity. But bring your struggles to God. You don't have to be intact. A theology of pain is perfectly compatible with the new life. In fact, it shows humility. You are in transition from the old to the new. And dear friends, I want to say to you that we serve our faithful Saviour Christ. And as you are faithfully committed to him, you will find even more so he is faithfully committed to you. I was in tears when that thought gripped me once again. My Saviour Christ has promised to see me through, to bring me home, like it says in Hebrews chapter 2, to bring many sons to glory, children, if you'd rather, children home to glory. That's what he's going to do. My faithful Saviour has committed himself for that progress, that destiny, which is also our destination. I want to close with a story. 
So sit back, feeling comfortable, then I shall begin. Many years ago, there was a monastery. Centuries before, this monastery had been a thriving order, and dozens and dozens of monks lived, prayed, served, and worshipped. Now, there were only five monks, all of whom were over 70. This was clearly a dying order. What shall we do? They said, something has got to happen. Something's got to change. There is no new generation coming through. Well, they decided to go and visit a hermit. <coughs> the hermit lived some distance away, meant a bit of travel, but they knew this guy had a reputation for wisdom. He will tell us what we can do. If there's any way of restoring our fortunes. So they go to see the hermit, and the hermit doesn't do anything other than commiserate. Yes, he said. It's very difficult, isn't it? Hardly anyone cares for the old ways anymore. I don't know what the answer is. But all I can tell you is that one of you is an apostle of God. Well, the monks returned with this cryptic advice. Oh, well, that wasn't much use, was it? Or was it? After some weeks, they were ruminating on this. What, what does this mean? One of you is an apostle of God, and maybe... The thoughts of them all was like one of them that said, well, maybe. If one of us is an apostle of God, then it's got to be the abbot. After all, he's been the leader of our order for a generation. Yes, it's definitely the abbot. On the other hand, it could be Brother Elred. Brother Elred is like a prophet, crotchety, but he's always right. Yep, definitely Brother Elred. Or maybe it's Brother Thomas, he's always reliable, faithful, praying guy. Brother Philip... No, he's too, too insignificant, too self-effacing. On the other hand, he's cheerful. Maybe he's the apostle. Oh, hang on a minute. Maybe it's me. Could I be the apostle? No, no, Lord, I could never be that for you. 
Lord, it's not me. Please don't make it me. And as the days go by, something begins to happen. On the off chance that one of them is an apostle, and on the off off chance that it might even be me, there begins to develop between them an aura of enormous respect and love. Well, the days go by. The monastery is situated in a forest, and by the forest there runs a stream, and people would often walk by and picnic. Sometimes they'd go into the chapel and they'd pray. And they notice the atmosphere of extraordinary respect that is filling the place, permeating everything. One of them begins to talk to a monk. Well, what is it you've got? Maybe I could join. There's something here that's calling, calling, calling. And because of the love, that began to seep out and seep out. And before long, the monastery was once again filled with people and practitioners and monks, all because of the hermit's gift. Thank you for listening to the London School of Theology podcast. To find out more about LSD and our courses, please visit our website.